Hello, listeners. If you are enjoying this podcast without commercial interruption and are financially able, please consider supporting our effort. To contribute, go to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and click on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. In God's speed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Get my feet up. Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? When that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis and you're listening to episode number 426 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Skylab 4, the first EVA. Before we advance through the latter half of the mission, I wanted to rewind a bit and cover some of the highlights that we skipped over during the telling of the crew and mission control's space adaptation story. One of the early experiments conducted was the Skylab barium-shaped charge experiments. In this experiment, two black Brant 4A barium-shaped charge rockets were fired from Poker Flat. These produce very interesting results to the scientist. Los Alamos Scientific Laboratory and Sandia Laboratories participated in the experiments, providing the high explosive shaped charge and the payload and payload preparation. The first shot, called NASA 19.008UA, launched at 1506 November 27, 1973. It attained near nominal performance and produced a well-defined plasma jet. Observations by eye and with black and white photography were made for more than four minutes from Skylab. It's successful in its attempt to photograph the barium cloud created by the launch of a black plant Black Brant 4 rocket from Fairbanks, Alaska. The barium material weighing approximately two pounds was exploded into an orbit at 348 miles higher than the 348 miles high. Skylab is about 235 nautical miles altitude. This cloud uh, exploded into the magnetic uh, field ionized by the sun and the particles drifting from the magnetic field from Alaska all the way down to New Zealand. Flight director Don Putty complimenting his flight controllers here at Mission Control Center following that successful operation. He says everything is going smooth. Keep up the good work. The launch occurred during an active magnetic situation and high electric fields. 
The second launch proved to be the most interesting experiment which Los Alamos and Sandia had done to that date. NASA 19.009 UA was launched at 1520, December 4, 1973. It had a nominal performance, also in distributed magnetic conditions. The jet was observed to travel out into the magnetosphere for 15 minutes with no obvious indication of striation formation except at the very lowest ionospheric altitude. Near event plus 15-minute striations in the farthest portion of the street, 6 to 12,000 kilometers altitude, were observed to develop rapidly. Within a few seconds, there was a brightening of this portion of the plasma of three times. At event plus 16 minutes, there was a rapid separation and dispersion of the various striations at the head of the jet. After they dispersed, we observed that the lower portion, altitude less than 6,000 kilometers, of the jet remained unaffected and could still be seen for many minutes, unstriated. Thus, we believe we have observed an interaction of the barium plasma jet in a specific space velocity regime with the ambient magnospheric particles and wave. A paper on these results was given at the spring 1974 AGU meeting, which will be enlarged as a complete scientific paper for publication in the future. Moving on. Also that first week, the astronauts got their first view of the comet Kahootek by using binoculars. And, uh, Bill, I'm up here on the command module, and i got a real good view of the comet and the binoculars now. Okay, we got that. i got a very prominent tail. Mission Day 6 brought the unpleasant news of a mildew breakout. Houston, have you had a chance to look at the LCGs yet? I'm just in the process of getting after them now. Okay, Jerry, and the kind of things we're interested in is uh, the fungus or mildew growth. We'd like to know the color and the size and distribution, shape, and odor, and things like that, and uh, compare what you see with uh, what you saw on Mission Day 6 uh, after the EVA drying. Okay, sure will. And then we just want to re restore them, and, the, and then we, we'd like to get there if possible by the nanary because we're holding up tomorrow's flight plan until we uh, uh, get the results of the inspection. If, if it needs it, we're going to have to set up some sort of biocide routine for tomorrow. Unfortunately, Mission Day 7 brought more trouble. It was November 22nd, Thanksgiving Day in the United States. A problem developed in the Skylab gyroscopic attitude control system, which threatened to bring an early end to the mission. To make matters worse, this failure occurred during the first EVA. The first gyro motor current showed a rapid rise, which indicated failure, and so it was turned off. The gyroscope failure was attributed to insufficient lubrication. This failure 
required switching to a two-gyro operation for orientation instead of three. Normal operation was with two gyros backed up by the third, and so losing one was not the main concern. But with so much attitude fuel being used early in the mission, with only a third of the original amount remaining, and with significant Earth resources passes to be completed, as well as the planned complex maneuvering to photograph Comet Kahootek, it might be a close call to complete the mission as planned, although the crew remained confident that this would be the case. Twelve days later, Gyro 2 started malfunctioning, jeopardizing the mission. The gyro operated normally for a time, then slowed down and overheated before returning to normal. However, the abnormal operations were becoming more frequent. Extensive ground testing and analysis were conducted to control the operation of the gyro heaters and monitor its performance for the remainder of the mission. But the real highlight of Mission Day 7, of course, was the EVA. By this time, Pogue was feeling much better and, with Gibson, got suited up to go outside. This was the first of four excursions into the final frontier, leaving Carr in the multi-docking adapter. Gibson would complete three of the four EVAs and during the mission was really impressed with the grandeur of the view outside, as has been the case with Lausma before him. Gibson remarked, quote, Boy, if this isn't the great outdoors, inside you're looking out through a window, here you're right in it, end quote. The two astronauts replaced film cassettes, deployed the coronagraph contamination experiments on the Apollo Telescope Mount Truss, and used a camera that had originally been intended for use from the airlock, which was now blocked by the parasol. They attempted taking photographs of the Earth's atmosphere, but that failed after only five of the 40 photographs had been taken. As they tried to repair the microwave, radiometer, scattermeter, altimeter, antenna in an area not designed for EVA operations, they found it very difficult to maintain position and prevent their umbilical from tangling. The top of the Apollo telescope mount structure reminded Pogue of being in the crow's nest of a ship. After six hours and 33 minutes, they had completed their task and headed back inside. They had completed almost 100% of their task and had hardly raised a sweat. The EVA confirmed that since Gemini, a great deal had been learned in performing spacewalks in Earth orbit. Ed Gibson recalled, quote, EVAs were good hard work that always left a feeling of accomplishment, as well as some stimulating and lasting visual images. 
Our training at the neutral buoyancy tank at Marshall was excellent. Working in the water was always a bit more difficult because of the water resistance and the fact that you could never get weighed out perfectly, which left forces and torques on your body that didn't exist in space. If you could do it in the tank, you could do it in space. Over the years, I spent a lot of time at Marshall, not only in training, but also in the development of procedures and hardware. In fact, the first time Bill and I went out the airlock, part of me expected to see the eyes of safety divers magnified behind their mask, ready to assist, and big bubbles streaming past my helmet, then breaking up, flattening into mushrooms, and turning to white spray at the surface. Instead, it was all clear. No divers, no bubbles. Nothing was outside. Three times I went out that hatch into the truly great outdoors. When I was out there, it was a silent world, except for the whispers of my own breath. Sometimes I felt totally alone, like the world below me didn't even know I was there. But then I thought of the many people on consoles in Mission Control who monitored everything on the station, including my every breath, word, and heartbeat. And I realized that I was being fully supported in the most extensive way possible. Jerry Carr described the spacewalk as thus, quote, On the first EVA, Bill and Ed went out and did a lot of repair work. We had a microwave antenna on the side of the spacecraft that faced the Earth that needed some diagnostics and repair. Unfortunately, there were no handrails or foot restraints on that side, so when we trained for it, the neutral buoyancy tank, we had to figure out how we were going to get it done. Basically, we found a place on a truss where we could fasten foot restraints. Bill got into these restraints and held on to Ed's feet while he reached up and made the fix to the microwave antenna. It was ad hoc, very difficult, but it worked. Ed Gibson said, quote, Removing the cover from the microwave antenna electronics box turned out to be exceptionally difficult. On one side of the box, four screws had to be removed. On the ground, it was easy, but in flight, because the real box had a metal lip that closed overhung the screws, it was anything but easy. The small screwdriver that fit the small screws had to be inserted into the slots from the side of the screw heads rather than the top which was extremely difficult in our large, bulky EVA gloves. Bill and I both gave it a shot. I remember thinking of my last try. Our success here is limited only by something physical. We're just not going back in until this little hammer is fixed. After the better part of an hour, we got the top removed and the work done. It felt good to achieve something difficult, even though most of my fingernails had turned purple 
from the intense and prolonged squeezing of the screwdriver. Just to get to the antenna electronics box, many layers of aluminized mylar insulation had to be cut away with scissors. Most of these highly reflective pieces floated free and were blown away from Skylab by the gases venting from our suits. It happened at sunset so that the red light of the setting sun reflected off these tumbling reflectors in the distance. We commented on the cloud of red flashing lights that appeared to be following us. One of the tabloids picked up on what we saw and, of course, did not give the real explanation. Clearly, we were not chased by flashing red UFOs guided by extraterrestrial intelligence. End quote. This is Skylab Control Houston. Skylab crewman Ed Gibson and Bill Pogue are spending their Thanksgiving Day afternoon working outside their orbiting space station on this, their seventh day in orbit. The crew is progressing through a six-hour spacewalk today, replacing film and solar cameras, installing scientific experiments, and attempting to make repairs to a bulky antenna. When they are finished, the crew will have a hot Thanksgiving Day dinner. This is Skylab Control Houston. Now, going back to that gyro failure that I mentioned earlier, Bill Pogue told this story about it. Quote, I was really embarrassed. I had unintentionally caused the current problem with the gyro, and it didn't take a rocket scientist to figure it out. Our suits were fed oxygen from inside Skylab, and there was no recycling of the air. It automatically fed in near the back of my head, flowed down across my face, and then escaped out the front of the suit near my waist. The outward airflow had somehow acted like a small thruster. It was like letting the air out of a balloon. Although the force from the escaping air was small, my position at the sun end of the Apollo telescope mount magnified the thrusting effect because I was about 30 feet from the center line of Skylab. In other words... This lever arm was giving the force of the escaping air a lot of leverage. The airflow from my suit was rotating a hundred-ton space station. End quote. Even though the EVA was a success, it tired the crew. And on squaring away, they left some of the tasks to the next day. As I have mentioned, Carr did not wish to admit that his crew was unable to keep up with the flight plan, and the ground also later admitted that they had made an error in assigning too much to the crew, and in not realizing how much time would be required to complete even the simplest task, which took much longer to accomplish in space. For the Thanksgiving Day meal, the crew reported that the food was good, but slightly bland. The quantity and type of food consumed was rigidly controlled because of their strict diet. 
Although the crew would have preferred to use more condiments to enhance the taste of the food, and the amount of salt they could use was restricted for medical purposes. By the time the third crew arrived, the NASA kitchen had increased the availability of condiments, and salt and pepper was in liquid solutions. Granular salt and pepper brought aboard by the second crew was little more than air pollution. After the first week, life became a little more routine, though the crew still had an inflated work schedule. A daily routine of living and working aboard Skylab was established. It included intensive exercise periods for each man. An elastic harness and treadmill was one device used to help keep body muscles in good shape in the weightless environment. A bicycle ergometer provided a means of exercising as well as data for several medical experiments. One result of the medical investigations conducted by the three Skylab crews indicates that man can live in space for extended periods of time without ill effect. Weight loss and muscle deterioration recorded on shorter space flights were not serious problems on the long duration missions. In fact, by mission's end, the members of the third Skylab crew were gaining weight. Measuring weight in space required a special unit called a body mass measurement device. The back and forth movement or oscillation period of the device is measured and electronically converted to a mass readout. A large selection of frozen and canned food was available for meals aboard Skylab. Individual food trays with heating elements were used by the astronauts. Magnets held the utensils to the tray until used. However, each man had to watch his own steak to make sure it stayed in place until consumed. Individual water guns provided both hot and cold water. They were used for drinking and in the preparation of some foods. Cleaning up after meals included taking out the garbage, which was deposited in a waste disposal tank. As mentioned before, Medical experiments and observation was an increasing priority for the third crew who would occupy Skylab the longest time. Gibson recalled, quote, The bicycle ergometer was a great exercise tool as well as a good experiment, especially early in the mission. It was a relief to have the blood pulled down into our legs to support our exercise which relieved some of the fullness in our heads caused by the zero gravity and resulting upward fluid shift. Once I got pretty cranked up and developed a good sweat, a considerable amount of water clung to my back in a sheet and oscillated like jello as I pedaled. If a towel was not available, 
The shake-like-a-dog procedure usually worked. In zero gravity, we couldn't use the seat on the bike. The straps to hold us in place caused too much chafing, and my arms got tired of holding me stable at high workloads for 45 minutes. Instead, I used my head. I taped a folded towel on the ceiling and put the top of my head against it to stabilize my body while I pedaled. It worked. We also had something on board that the previous crew did not. A device called Thornton's Revenge. Named in honor of Bill Thornton, the astronaut physician who had a knack of doing highly beneficial things in clever and simple ways. Previous crews reported that they could have used some form of exercise that maintained the strength in their leg muscles that they used for walking and running upon return to Earth. Bill again came to the rescue with a poor man's treadmill. It consisted of a thin sheet of Teflon about a foot wide and three feet long and a bungee cord that went over our shoulders to hold us down against the Teflon with a force equal to approximately our own weight. With only stocking feet against the Teflon, we could simulate walking or running by forcing our feet to slide over the Teflon one after the other, or we could just bounce up and down. Use of this exercise equipment was one of the few times I ever worried about what and when I ate before exercise. Eating some fire-hot chili while exercise is bad enough on Earth. But in zero gravity, it's doubly bad. A real killer. That's because without gravity, it bounces against the top of your stomach as well. Mixing chili and a treadmill aside, it was an enjoyable exercise and definitely helped maintain leg strength. Thanks, Bill. Because of the extra requirements placed on the food system by the mineral balance experiment, this system was as much of a medical experiment as it was a crew habitability system. Despite having to do double duty, we found the food to be great. Many people pictured tough astronauts in space surviving on food from squeeze tubes. That's the wrong image. Try the image of filet mignon, lobster Newberg, and strawberry sundaes. End quote. Bill Pogue recalled, quote, our crew also broke new ground in the annals of spaceflight with the first full set of condiments in space. Rita Rapp developed them for the second crew after Pete had really railed about the yucky, bland taste of their food. Imagine they had no condiments. The second crew took up only regular salt and pepper. But we had deluxe treatment. Liquid salt, liquid pepper, hot sauce, 
horseradish, and garlic. Life couldn't get any better than that. End quote. While all this was going on in space, as part of the normal mission operations, the backup rescue vehicle for Skylab 4 was rolled to the pad on Mission Day 18. That would be December 13, 1973. Thankfully, it would not be needed. Making final preparations now for the rollout of the Skylab rescue vehicle. At 6.33, just a few minutes ago, they started uh, jacking. The transporter underneath the mobile launcher began jacking up. It will lift the uh, mobile launcher with a Skylab on top of it, approximately two feet so that it can clear the lugs and be ready to move out of the vehicle assembly building. Skylab rescue vehicle is sitting on top of that mobile launcher on its specially designed, specially built pedestal, which is 127 feet tall and is 127 feet above the launch platform. This raises the Saturn 1B Skylab rescue vehicle up to a height where it can utilize the upper swing arms, which were designed for the Saturn V. The crew of Gerald Carr, the crew commander, Ed Gibson, science pilot, and William Pogue, the pilot, now uh, having a successful final mission in Skylab. The rescue vehicle will be taken out to the pad, undergo its final preparations, and uh, then when we get to the point where hypergols would be loaded, hypergolic propellants would be loaded aboard the vehicle, a uh, hold will be called, and it will be in a standby position then as long as the Skylab 4 crew is, is uh, in orbit. Back on Skylab, the crew was starting on some very interesting experiments relating to space manufacturing. The men had a busy work schedule aboard Skylab and accomplished much more than planned. They spent more than three times the scheduled hours working on materials and space manufacturing experiments. This device was used by the astronauts in conducting flammability tests to observe the burning process in a zero-gravity environment. The astronauts explained some of the work they performed aboard the Sky Laboratory. We're going to be studying a little bit in the next couple of days. One particular way of forming crystals, which Dr. John Carruthers, uh, one of the people working in the field right now, feels is a very uh, promising way in which to grow crystals with exceptionally uh, pure uniform properties. This will enable us to create much smaller uh, crystals, or much smaller transistors, if you will, much smaller circuitry, and we think make a improvement in the electronics industry. However, what we're going to be doing has application in many fields. Uh, just plain study of fluid mechanics in zero-g, I think you'll, you'll see is going to be fun, and it's also got some very basic applications. What we're looking at here are the uh, two ends on which I have injected three cc's of water each, the one on the left with a red dye in it, and the one on the right clear, although it does have some bubbles in it. First, I'll move them together. See 
surface tension takes over as soon as they hit. Yeah, I hope you can see the interface between the two. And we're ready for the rotation. Now I'm going to try to rotate this so that I'll be moving the bar up, which holds the string at around 16 inches every 10 seconds. Okay, we're in motion now. Notice nothing really violent. Okay, now I'll accelerate it a little bit. That appears to be about the max we can go. gyro there's my string looking to get tangled now I'm going to turn this little rascal loose there okay and I'm going to use these two soda straws in order to provide the forces that I need now I've got this gyro spinning quite fast now and now notice when I hit it with a straw or deflect it See, it moves in translation, does it? Just, just exactly the way it did before. But you notice that when I hit it, it doesn't want to tumble or drift in rotation. It maintains its rigidity in space. Gibson explained another lesser-known experiment, saying, quote, We also performed an experiment to nail down previous crew's observations. Light flashes had been observed by dark-adapted crew persons when outside the Van Allen radiation belts, such as lunar flights and in Earth orbit when going through the South Atlantic anomaly, where the inner radiation belt dips down lower than at all other locations around the globe. Even though a rough correspondence between the occurrence of the light flashes and presence in the South Atlantic anomaly was observed on the two previous Skylab missions, no exact correlation had been made. Bill Pogue was selected and enthusiastically performed this arduous experiment. His task was to float in his sleep compartment wearing a blindfold and speak into a tape recorder every time he observed a flash. When the frequency of the flashes was plotted against Skylab's position in orbit, a well-defined bell-shaped curve resulted that was centered exactly over the South Atlantic anomaly. Jerry and I praised Bill for his Herculean effort in the name of science. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina on the shores of the mighty Yadkin River. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 426 of the Space Rocket History podcast entitled Skylab 4, 
the first EVA. Our next episode should be released on or about Saturday, November 18th. If you would like to be notified by email when new episodes are posted, you can subscribe to the blog by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and typing in your email in the text box on the right side of the page. If you're looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 243, that's right, 243, are available on the Archive Podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. You have to put the word archive in your search. If you would like, you may follow me on Twitter. We would love to see you there. And you can follow me on Facebook. My Twitter handle is at Space Rocket Hist. And you can also follow me on Facebook. Okay. Afterthoughts. As always, I apologize for my mispronunciations. In case I confused you, my intention for this episode was to catch us up with the things the crew did that were skipped over because I was telling the space adaptation and fake news strike story. So I, I, the intention is I rewound and went back to one to week one and tried to hit the highlights of what the crew was doing while trying to keep up with that rigorous flight schedule. I will continue to do that until we reach the point I left off when Mission Control and the crew got things straightened out with their schedule. Then we will proceed into the rest of the third crew's story. Then there is a secret episode I'm planning on doing. And after that, we'll get to the demise of Skylab. So that's what's coming up. Uh, and after that, we'll return us back to 1973, where this began, and uh, several uncrewed missions, and also including Salute 2. I do want to apologize for starting off the episode in a rather dry scientific mode with the barium experiment. That came uh, directly from NASA in a press release. It was obviously tailored to scientists, so I'm sorry if that was a little boring, but I wanted to include it because it was part of the mission and it had never been done with a space station involved. So that was very unique. Did you notice on some of the clips the music that was playing in the background? I think that was an offshoot of some of the mod, M-O-D, music that was kind of dated at the time it was played. I can remember, I was about 13 years old at the time, and I remember thinking that that must be the music old people thought that young people liked to hear. Now, I personally didn't like it at all, and wondered why they were playing that lousy, outdated music. <laughs> but that was just a kid's opinion, opinion, you know. Now I love it. <laughs> just kidding. I still don't like it. <laughs> okay. Moving on. Finally, in uh, personal news. 
Last week I thought my mother-in-law was over the hump and was healing up. Well, I was wrong. On Friday, two weeks ago, they moved her out of ICU and into a regular room. Everything was going well. My wife was talking to her, and suddenly she stopped talking, and her heart just stopped beating. Nothing. They did revive her using CPR, but in doing so, they broke nine of her ribs. That's right, nine of her ribs. As you can expect, when she regained consciousness, she was experiencing the worst pain in her 90-year life from those broken ribs. Well, after two days, they got the pain under control somewhat. But her vitals had lost stability. By that, I mean her blood pressure was constantly fluctuating, going from high to low, and her heart was racing. Eventually, they got her stabilized using medication, and she was finally released from the hospital last Friday or Saturday. I can't remember which day it was. Now she is home, but of course requires 24-7 monitoring. Right at this moment, it looks like she's going to recover. But honestly, we don't really know. The doctors still have no explanation as to why her heart just stopped. So that's always a worry in the back of our minds is, is we don't understand why it just stopped. So that's kind of where we're at. It's been an exhausting couple of weeks. I'm sure you can imagine. Hopefully, we're moving in the right direction now. All right, let's move on to financial support. Over the past fortnight, we received five new donations and pledges. I would like to thank Richard S., who donated at the Soyuz level, Tori S., who donated at the Vostok level, Louis M., who donated at the Vostok level, Robert E. pledged on Patreon at the Starship level and earned an alien emoji. Lucas M. increased his pledge on Patreon to the Apollo level. Thank you all. We appreciate it. Patreon is currently sitting at 227. We had gained back up to 231, but the end of the month came again, and we lost patrons due mainly, I guess, to the expired credit cards again because every month we go through the expired credit card story where uh, they, they expire and, uh, <laughs> every month. Our total donors, which include Patreon, PayPal, Venmo, Zelle, and checks for 2023, have reached 338. Our overall goal of this year is 450 for and uh we're quite a ways from that we're uh 112 looks like away from that so uh we're here ready <laughs> for your help if you would like to if you're enjoying this podcast 
that has been running now over 10 and a half years without commercial interruptions and you can't afford it, please consider going to the homepage at spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link or you can donate by check. Donate on Venmo or Zelle using my email address spacerockethistory at gmail.com. Now is also a good time to begin the emoji maneuver. As we enter the end of the year, you can quickly earn a longevity emoji next to your name on the donors page. The idea is to make a donation now and a donation in January for next year and earn a rocket emoji or advance to the next emoji in your collection. And some of you have a pretty big collection. In less than three months, well, it's less than two months now, doesn't, doesn't that sound great? It sounds great to me. <laughs> if you're unable to support financially, it would help if you can retweet the, well, I guess, it's, is it still called tweeting now since it's X instead of Twitter? I, I guess it's called tweeting still. Retweet the post on X, not Twitter, or repost uh, my Facebook post or write a good good old five-star review on your podcatcher like a Spotify needs more reviews or, or the uh, Apple podcast is what it's called now. I mistakenly called it Apple Music last time, but it's Apple Podcast is what it's actually called. Remember, uh, Google Podcast said they were going uh, kaput, by, I think it was by the end of the year, so see if you can find another podcast catcher other than Google Podcast. Uh, Mrs. SRH is with her mother today, so I'm going to do this week's donor giveaway. Let's see. I would like to, uh, wait a minute. Okay, the winner for this episode will get the choice of the rare and beautiful SRH archive magnet. It is rare. It is beautiful. You need this archive magnet to complete your collection. Or the regular magnet, which we're running a little low on supplies for that one. Or two stickers or a NASA meatball sticker. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected, or actually Mrs. SRH selected, Shelby Runner. That is Shelby Runner. If you would email us, spacerockethistory at gmail.com to tell us your address and your SRH prize preference, we will get this out to you. Uh, please accept my apologies if I misread, mispronounced your name. I think I got that one right. Sincere thanks to all 338 of you who have contributed thus far in 2023. My sources for this episode were NASA, Homesteading Space, The Skylab Story by David Hitt, Skylab, Our First Space Station by Leland Bailu, Skylab, America Space Station by David Shaler, uh, the Internet Archive, Flickr, and Wikipedia. And that is all I have for this episode. I'll try to have episode 427 posted on or about November 18th. So long for now.